Today we conclude our series on the Oklahoma City bombing. We'll explain how all of McVeigh's friends and associates in part two may have been aware of or even involved in the actual bombing. We'll discuss the aftermath of the bombing, including McVeigh's trial and execution. And we'll also close out the stories on the numerous other people believed to be involved. Through all of this, one question remains. Why didn't the FBI aggressively pursue the other suspects that many eyewitnesses had identified? I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you're ready to hear the end of this tale, stick around. Much like a drunk girl telling a story, it's about time Ian lands his plane. This is Necronomapod. This morning, the United States of America carried out the severest sentence for the gravest of crimes. The victims of the Oklahoma City bombing have been given not vengeance, but justice. And one young man met the fate he chose for himself six years ago. For the survivors of the crime and for the families of the dead, the pain goes on. The final punishment of the guilty cannot alone bring peace to the innocent. It cannot recover the loss or balance the scales, and it is not meant to do so. Today, every living person who was hurt by the evil done in Oklahoma City can rest in the knowledge that there has been a reckoning. All right, if you're building your perfect hot dog, Ian, what are you putting on it? Mustard, onions, maybe relish if I'm feeling like it, but onions. Sweet relish or regular dill relish? Dill. Attaboy. Mustard, onions, and relish if you're feeling you know saucy that night. Wait, what'd you say? Say over. <laughs> <laughs> I said mustard, onions, and then maybe relish if you're feeling saucy that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Dave, what about you? Perfect hot dog. I generally do the same, mustard, onions, and relish. I do occasionally go for the kraut dog, so I like sauerkraut on there. Ooh, or slaw dogs yummy. with some coleslaw. Okay. Or even Chicago style. What do they put in Chicago? A bunch of stuff on no. it. The big pickle on Too it. Too much. Too much. It's like a whole meal. Opinion. Yeah. Chicago, well, this is going to be controversial probably. Chicago single handedly ruined pizza and the hot dogs. So that's on them. <laughs> that's outrageous. That's on them. That's fucking, they have their pizza you got to eat with a goddamn knife and fork, and they put a goddamn salad on their hot dogs. I'm not okay with all that. Here's, I'm not okay with it. Here's a controversial one. I like Chicago pizza better than New York pizza, so how about that? I think we've had this debate before. I don't think, when you have to use a knife and fork, I don't. I think it's no longer pizza. It's it's like lasagna or something at that point. I don't know. I love I want. I want something I could eat with my hand walking down the street, New York style. I don't know, man. I've had pizza in New York. It's not the greatest. This conversation took a turn. I was expecting a hot dog conversation, and we went straight to pizza. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. Chicago style. Well, Dave, you gave like five answers there. So your actual answer is what? You like like Ian, mustard and onion? Mustard, Maybe onion, relish. relish. And some slaw. I'm throwing the slaw on there. Ooh, yeah, all four. All, all four? And the kraut, maybe. I, God I'm, damn. I'm really hungry right now. I'm having trouble deciding. <laughs> now... <laughs> so, no. Now you have to eat your hot dog with a knife and fork, too, with all that shit on it. All right, I'm going to give final answer. Stadium mustard, chopped onions, yep. relish, sauerkraut. Final answer. Okay. I would eat that hot dog. I'm not a huge onion <laughs> fan, would, but I would pal. eat that hot <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so you guys are not chili dog fans? Because like oh, yeah, chili dog, sure. chili is my go-to topping. Chili for sure. Yeah, it's good. Kind of overshadows I, the hot dog sometimes. It, it does. You, you, just, you can't put too much on it. So I would go chili and mustard are my is my go-to hot dog. 
occasionally put on some shredded cheese, maybe. Sometimes some of the nacho cheese, like if you get one of those uh, gas station type gimmicks with the little pump thing with the cheese. Sounds good. As long but, as there's uh, no ketchup. I mean, if you put ketchup on a hot dog, you're a psychopath. I don't mind ketchup, but it's not my go-to. And recently I had tried uh, one of our listeners, uh, Discord Whitney, who is obsessed with uh, mayonnaise, had me try mayo on the hot dog. Uh, not awful. It's not the worst thing in the world. So, Man. you know, if you're willing to want to try uh, try something different, it wasn't awful. I would take that. Mayo's good. Yeah. Small doses. It kind of coats your mouth in a disgusting way. So you got to just use small amounts of it. I'd like to offer a correction from last week, if I may. By all means, the floor is yours. I somehow neglected to name my other favorite cereal, Honey Smacks, which is the second most fabulous <laughs> cereal in the history of mankind. <laughs> somehow I neglected to put that in my list, so I would like to adjust my list and put that in so what's proper your, place. So what's your, what's your top three then? I don't remember what you you cinnamon, cinnamon toast, toast crunch, crunch, honey smacks, honey, golden grams. I don't even think I know what honey smacks are. Well, then you're fucking missing out, pal. That's got the frog on the cover, right? Or yep. on the box. Yep. <laughs> oh, I remember those. They used to be called sugar smacks. And they're like, hmm, marketing. That's not a great name. Let's call them honey smacks. <laughs> <laughs> we were also reminded, um, I made the comment about um, that. Cinnamon Toast Crunch has the best milk taste for afterwards. Sure. I didn't agree that it was in my top three, but the milk taste was the best. And then we were reminded by a few people that that's actually a shot named Cinnamon Toast Crunch, that it tastes like the milk of the leftover uh, cereal, oh, which is actually a, del it's a delicious shot, but you can only do about one and then you get diabetes. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, it's delicious, but you know, what are you going to do? All right, so well, this has been uh, like a six-week journey that I feel like culminates finally with this episode here. We've gotten into some heavy shit. I kind of miss the days of just serial killers hacking people up. <laughs> we'll be back there soon, pal. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be careful what I wish for. So anyways, Ian, uh, where, did the, where the fuck did we leave off? Well, where we left off on part two, President Bill Clinton signed the 10-year assault rifle ban on September 13th, 1994, and as a result... The bomb making officially began. Hey, hey, Ian, you know what else I signed that day? <laughs> I signed my name in jizz on the White House maid's face. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> Carry on. I don't think he left I don't think he left the studio from last week. This guy could live anywhere in the world. He lives in our studio, the Necro Bunker. See? The fucking uh, Secret Service has been outside the Necro Bunker or the Necro Studio all week, uh, keeping track of Bill, who just doesn't want to seem to leave us. Yeah, they're bringing me uh, Discord patrons in here. I'm banging them two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> You're the man, Bill. You're the man, Mr. President. Goddamn right, Mike. <laughs> Unlike you, I can find the clit every time. <laughs> well, that's a that's a that's a bonus show joke. <laughs> Mr. President. So it doesn't matter, Mike. It plays wherever I want it to. <laughs> so the day before the assault rifle ban was signed on September 12th, 1994, also gives us the closest evidence that McVeigh was physically in Elohim City. McVeigh stayed at a motel just over the Arkansas border right by Elohim City. So the thought is that the motel would give a paper trail that he could say, yeah, I was close to Elohim City, but I never physically was there. Mm. 
Also in the fall of 1993, McVeigh got a speeding ticket near Elohim City shortly after he met Andy the German. Oh, yeah, our friend Andy the German. Who oh, was yeah. Andy the German again, Ian? Uh, Andre I mean, obviously I know because I'm an, I'm an expert on this, <laughs> this stuff, but for the people who might not remember, maybe you can explain it for them. Andreas Strassmeyer, he uh, came over here to do some Civil War reenactments. Uh, everybody got sick of his bullshit, and then somehow he ended up in Elohim City, and he started training them as like a military group over there. That's right. He just showed up and was like, I'm in charge of like tactical training now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were like, you're white, buddy. Come on in, right? <laughs> yep. Welcome. <laughs> German, Welcome, you say? White man. <laughs> yeah, Look at German, all that Aryan blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> German, you say? Oh, we may have something in common. Come on in. <laughs> In October of 1994, McVeigh started using a storage unit in Harrington, Kansas, that Terry Nichols had to store furniture. McVeigh would use this storage unit to store all the bomb-making materials. The pieces and parts of, for the bomb came from a quarry robbery, and the nitromethane came from racetracks and hobby stores. The ammonium nitrate was purchased from eight different locations. Basically, McVeigh and Nichols stopped off at every store that sold fertilizer that they could find until they acquired 4,000 pounds of this stuff. Fuck, how long did that take? Took a while. Yeah, I mean, bad. that's a lot of fucking ammonium nitrate. <laughs> After a couple months of doing this, Terry Nichols started to get cold feet about what they were doing. According to Nichols, up until this point, he wasn't taking anything McVeigh was saying or doing to be too serious. What the fuck did which... he think they were doing? <laughs> yeah, but you just fucking got 4,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate. <laughs> when Nichols confronted McVeigh, saying, like, hey, why exactly are we storing 4,000 pounds of this stuff? McVeigh came clean about everything, told him the whole bomb plan that they were going to blow up the mirror building. When Nichols told McVeigh he wouldn't go through with it, McVeigh pulled his jacket back to show Nichols a gun and told him he would kill his son, brother, and mother if he didn't do it. According to Nichols, this threat is why he went through with helping McVeigh until the end. Mm. Shady. Sounds like yeah, a it's... load of bullshit to me. Yeah. yeah, just playing the victim, kind of. According to the, quote, official story, to get the money for all this stuff, McVeigh decided he was going to rob his friend that he met at a gun show in Fort Lauderdale named Roger Moore. Now, if we remember, Moore was the guy from part two that McVeigh went to stay with uh, before he and Nichols got really close. McVeigh went and crashed at Moore's farm for 10 days in Arkansas. According to McVeigh's story, he learned the codes to Moore's security system while he stayed there, and his justification for robbing him was that Moore was weak and would give up his guns if the federal government ever came for them. So, like, Moore never gave up his guns or anything? It was just, like, a kind of presupposed, like, he's weak and he would give them up. He wouldn't fight to the death for his guns. Mm. And we and we all know those white supremacist uh, anti-government types all stand up to the government when uh, the police trample on uh, on the liberties of the of the protesters and people, right? <laughs> we saw that this week, right? The outrage from all the right-wing uh, anti-government folks, right? Yeah, they were very upset. Oh yeah. In all reality, this seemed to be more of like a half-assed money laundering scheme to conceal where the money was really coming from. In that Roger Moore knew McVeigh was going to rob him. For months after the robbery, Moore and McVeigh sent each other a bunch of cryptic letters back and forth, and Moore was said to like comically tell everybody he possibly could, and as loud as he could, that McVeigh was the one that robbed him. These guys think they're clever. <laughs> yeah, right? In one of those letters, nine days before the bombing, Moore wrote, quote, 
The plan is to bring the country down and have a few more things happen. The important thing is to make it as effective as possible. Moore signed the letter Bob and wrote Burn in all capitals next to his signature. When the FBI questioned Moore, he said he was just trying to lure McVeigh to his farm so McVeigh could be arrested for the for robbing him. So clearly Not convenient. He, yeah. So I guess he didn't burn the letter, right? <laughs> yeah. Dumbass. <laughs> burn, burn right. in all capital letters. Okay. When the FBI asked him about the whole quote effective as possible bit, Moore just said he couldn't remember what he meant by saying that. And the crazy thing is, is that even with that bullshit answer and a lot of smoke to at least look further into this whole robbery and Roger Moore's involvement, because Roger Moore had a lot of experience with explosives. The FBI just let him go and never talked to him again. Wow. So you think these guys just had tunnel vision on, you know, their first suspect and kind of blocked everything else out? Yeah, I think there's some tunnel vision there. I think, and I think there's some uh, some cold feet not wanting to get into another big standoff. Yeah, with with people, because things are not going to get any better with their investigations here coming up. <laughs> right. So, like I just said, Roger Moore had a lot of knowledge about explosives, way more than McVeigh. Nichols told the FBI that if they went to certain areas on his farm, they would find explosive material, explosive materials with Roger Moore's fingerprints on them. The FBI found those exact explosives where Nichols said they would be, but for whatever reason, they waited three years to test the fingerprints, and by the time they pulled the prints, they were ruled as inconclusive. Well, shit, man. What the fuck were they doing for all that time? Yeah. Come on, Ian. We want answers. Tell us what they were doing. (laughs) Motherfucker. I don't want to, (laughs) like... I don't want to say they're completely negligent, but... Damn, as we go through this story, it really seems like they just ignored shit to make sure they got a conviction against one guy, mm. that they could get it against McVeigh, and they didn't want to fuck around with any of this other stuff. Simplest path. Well, and like, yeah, like you said before, Ian, like just still cold feet from Waco. Like they were probably just so afraid of getting themselves in another situation from a PR standpoint where they were going to look like the bad guys that they just honed in on one person, focused on that, and just wanted to get their conviction and get this over with. I get that, but at the I'm same time, I'm not saying time, it's, it's right. Like, I'm... No, right? Like I get it, but it's like, man, you're you're, uh, and we'll get into this later on too. But it's like you're you're law enforcement. It's your job to take care of this stuff. It's not your job to take turn the other turn away and just hope everything works out somewhat okay. I guess. Right. I, it's just you're law enforcement. You're not like public relations. You're not just trying to have right. a good image. You're trying to fucking keep people safe and enforce the law. I think there's a lot more of cover your own ass going on in this country than actually looking out for the, the, you know, what's best for the country sometimes. I 100% agree with that, especially in these situations. Yeah. Yep. Roger Moore also claimed on numerous occasions to be a protected government witness. This is actually entirely possible because at this time, the ATF and the FBI each had their own informants working for them and neither agency liked each other and neither one shared information with the other one. A retired ATF agent recalled that there was a meeting scheduled between the ATF and FBI to share information on Elohim City. According to this agent, they all sat there and never brought up Elohim City once because one, they didn't like each other, and two, if there was a big raid to happen at Elohim City, each agency wanted sole credit for it. There you go. Not putting the country first. Didn't something like that similar happen at Ruby Ridge? Didn't they have competing informants within that organization? Yeah, and that's the thing I was reading when I got that got the story from that that 
retired ATF guy about the Elohim City meeting is they these between the two agencies they had hundreds of informants working for them and they didn't share with each other who were actually informants and who weren't so there I mean it's completely possible that Roger Moore was was an informant and they would have never known you yeah, know yeah. the other agency after the robbery of Roger Moore was completed, Nichols decided that shit was getting too heavy for him, so he went with his mail-order bride, Mara Faye, down to the Philippines for a few months. After McVeigh got word of this and figured out that Nichols was gone, he went to Michael Fortier for help with the bomb plans. McVeigh explained everything in detail to the Fortier family, even using soup cans to show Fortier's wife how he was going to position barrels of explosives in the truck. Fuck. In December of 1994, McVeigh and Fortier went to the Mira building to start casing it. McVeigh says that this didn't happen, but there are more than enough eyewitness accounts that the two of them were there. McVeigh even spoke to a woman who worked at the daycare center specifically about the daycare center, saying he had two kids and was interested in it. The woman said McVeigh oddly commented over and over again about how many windows there were in the daycare center. What a piece of shit. Yeah, that's why I said in part one, he knew damn well that it was there. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it probably piqued his interest more in why he picked, you know, why this location was picked. I mean, I, I mean, I think that was uh, that was all planned out and thought about ahead of time. They knew that they were going to kill some kids and innocent people and grab everyone's attention for, you know, their fucked up cause. Well, we know for sure that McVeigh and Fortier were there because Fortier will later become the star witness for the case against McVeigh. But interestingly, there are a lot of eyewitness accounts from that day that put a man with a German accent with them, which we could assume would be Andy the German. Well, you know what happens when you assume, Ian. <laughs> What's that? Make no, that's it. I don't know. Of, what is it? Yeah. Oh. You make an <laughs> ass out of you and me. <laughs> you make an yeah. ass out of you and me. <laughs> Just like that joke did. <laughs> <laughs> At this time is also when a guy named Dennis Mahan is going to show up at Elohim City. Andy the German was friends with a white supremacist named Dennis Mahan that is considered to be so dangerous that the UK and Canada have banned him from entering their countries, labeling him as an international terrorist. Sounds about right, because they're smart. (laughs) We're like, hey, come on in, bud. Come on in, buddy. (laughs) USA. Mahan is a former high up with the KKK and a leader of the White Aryan Resistance in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is very much still an active organization. David Millar, the son of Robert Millar and current person in charge of Elohim City, considers Dennis Mahan to be a good friend of Elohim City, even though he's considered an international terrorist. Yeah, sounds like a can, great, great can, guy. can we talk about this David Millar for a minute? Jesus Christ, what a character. (laughs) I mean, am I wrong? You know what? I don't want to malign people with speech impediments, but goddamn, this guy deserves to be be maligned, and he sounds like a fucking moron. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to make fun of people either, but when your beliefs are, you know, as shitty as this guy's are, then maybe we can have a little bit of fun with it. I, I have no problem making fun of white supremacists at all, so... So let's hear a little bit. Uh, let's hear a little bit of David Millar talking. Um, don't adjust your podcast. You are not listening to a Looney Tunes clip of Elmer Fudd. Uh, it is actually David Millar. Um, go ahead. Let's uh, hit the tape. Here we go. When I read some of the papers about us, I'm like, these sound like bad people. I wouldn't want to be there. 
But yet it's me they're talking about, and I know we're not like that at all. Is when reports and newspapers go out and they say, there's a white supremacist extremist group in Oklahoma like that, and you'll notice most of the reports will say there's a compound. And if you look up the word compound, you'll find that this village, when you drove up here, doesn't qualify as a compound, does it? You didn't see big walls and the neighbors do that keep the deer in down there, but we don't have that. But they put out those kind of stories about us and it attracts people that might have other things in their heart and their mind. And once they come and stay a week or a few days, they realize, boy, you're about the Lord and you want to be involved in Christ. You know, what Christian identity, capital Christian, that's the primary focus. I, I would say I don't realize why being a racialist makes you a hater. You have people today, they'll raise quarter horses and they're very peculiar with each quarter horse and how they you know, breed them in order to get a show horse or with you know, bulldogs or Pomeranians or any other animal like that. So in order to you know, save the integrity of each species, it's important that they stay within their own group. And that's the way we feel and what we feel the scripture teaches like that. We really want to live our quiet life out here on the side of the hill by ourselves. We don't have closed doors, but we're definitely not out there pounding on doors either. The locals that know us, they're like, oh, that's a bunch of, of funny business. We don't care about it anyhow, right? The ones that don't know us, they can think what they want. <laughs> oh boy, this guy. <laughs> I love Christ. I love him. <laughs> it's so great. Like the first line when he's like, but I lived there. <laughs> like his voice cracks and it's just so perfect. He's just such a little character. I'm not a oasis. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I like how he goes through talking about how, how they don't hate people and, uh, and it's a good community. And yeah. then he brings up the fact that they believe in Christian identity. And then he goes on to talk about uh, interracial relationships and comparing them to breeding dogs like German shepherds and, and shit. Like, yeah, what? great. <sighs> we yeah, don't want to start else. a waste war. Woo <laughs> 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 wee. That was a great clip. <laughs> So that's that's who's running this shindig nowadays. <laughs> yep. H- head on down to LEM City, folks. <laughs> and remember Wooby Widge. <laughs> Good God. Oh, that's a that's a character that's gotta come back to our shows. I love this guy. <laughs> David Millar. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. I'm very, well, I believe, very I believe, racist. I believe his official name is Wasis David. <laughs> Please welcome back to the show, Wasis David. David, how are you? I'm very, very scared of black people. <laughs> but David, what did they ever do to you? They make me really uncomfortable. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, there it is, folks. <laughs> It's reprehensible what they do. <laughs> oh, I, I'm just going to keep the nonsense going here with this next line I'm about to read. <laughs> yeah, oh, folks, it gets better. So Dennis Mahan had a girlfriend named Carol Howe. 
these two jackasses met after how called a phone service that Mahan ran called Dial a Racist Hotline, which was basically some shitty thing that you could call and complain about negative experiences you had with other races of people. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to be lonely at racistsonly.com. When I read that, I'm like, what is even happening in this story? (laughs) I don't even know if people have farmers only in their area, but that's an ad that runs here nonstop late at night, farmersonly.com. So I feel like this, I feel like when I hear dial a racist hotline, like I think of like those like late night sex phone chat things Mm -hmm. where you can like dial up a number and then you have like phone sex with another racist and you just talk about despicable things and get your jollies off. That's where my mind went with it, at least. Racist hotline, can I help you? What's that? You said some Mexicans moved in next door to you. It's ridiculous. Can, racist can you hotline. imagine? Can you imagine the Karens calling that nowadays <laughs> for every fucking issue yeah. that they have? Racist hotline, how can we help you? <laughs> I'd like to report a black person sitting in the park. Well, that ain't acceptable, Karen. <laughs> Karen. Maybe David Millar could run the, the hotline. Hello, Oasis Hotline. How can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is something else, the story. Yeah, it's so weird, man. When I was reading it, I'm like, what is going on right now? <laughs> the problem is you really don't even feel bad laughing at them because they're just pieces of shit, scumbag human beings. Oh, I can do this all oh. day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's so that? You said the China date. delivery guy gave you the wrong order? That's not acceptable. <laughs> That's literally basically what it was from what I read was that she had like just some like shitty experience, like an argument with a black person at a party or something and called oh. this fucking number and then got hooked up with Dennis Mahan. <laughs> it's so dumb. What's that? You said your rabbit ears are down. You can't get the NASCAR race in. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, we can't. No, can't do that one. (laughs) Sorry, Mike. Sorry about that. It's all right. We're allowed to make those jokes. I'm a NASCAR fan. (laughs) So these two started dating for a while, but when Carol tried to leave him, Mahan raped her. She went to file charges, and the ATF got word of the charges, and they flipped Carol and made her an informant to get dirt on Mahan. She got back with Mahan in late 1994 and started to report back to the ATF what she was seeing and hearing. What, what was their leverage on her? How did they get her to flip and then act as an informant? You know what? I don't completely know because, I mean, I'm sure she was doing some illegal shit since yeah. she was dating Dennis Mahan, so maybe they knew of something illegal that she was doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Mahan maybe also made- by the fact that fucking Mahan, Mahan raped her and she was like, fuck this guy. I want to get him in trouble. Yeah, maybe it was that simple. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's true, too. Mahan was making and successfully detonating homemade grenades and was planning on blowing up a Mexican family owned video rental store. What the Carol- fuck, man? It, what yeah. is wrong this with guy- these people? This guy is a fucking piece of shit, man. We're going to, when we roll the credits at the end of this and follow up on all these people, this guy is extremely fucking dangerous. Jesus. Carol reported this back to the ATF and they didn't move on him. 
when Mahan set off a 500-pound ammonium nitrate bomb in Michigan and was very vocal and bragging about it, the ATF still did nothing. Carol Howe was told to just keep reporting back on what Mahan was up to, but when the two of them eventually made it to Elohim City and she reported back about Andy the German's paramilitary training, the ATF told her to switch gears and let them know what Andy the German was up to. That's interesting. So maybe they viewed Andy as the bigger fish here, huh? I think I think when they heard that he was like training uh like a mini army out there, they're like, Yeah, we're gonna we yeah. we wanna know about that. Sure. <laughs> In December nineteen ninety four, Carol filed a report that Andy the German was planning to take action with mass shootings and bombings. In that same month in Elohim City, founder Robert Millar made a speech instructing everyone there that it was time to act on what they had been preparing for. Carol's report also stated that something was being planned for April, but she wasn't close enough to the inner circle to know the exact details. Carol Howe was then told her assignment was over and the ATF never moved on Elohim City. Wow. Quite unfortunate. In 2010, retired ATF director John McGow is on record saying that the only reason the ATF didn't raid Elohim City was because they had not been retrained from what happened at Waco. McGow is also on record acknowledging that raiding Elohim City at that time would have been the one and only chance to potentially stop the Oklahoma City bombing from happening. It's a hell of a missed opportunity. I'll say that. I think, I, I mean, that's what I was saying. Like, it's you can't. They're, they're law enforcement. I get that they weren't retrained. I get that Waco was a complete shit show. But that doesn't mean you just let this kind of stuff roll. If you have a chance to to stop these guys, and it, it would have been bad. I, I would put a lot of money on the fact that it would have been a standoff. People would have been killed, and it would have been an, a whole other ordeal mm-hmm. again. But that doesn't mean that you don't rate it. That's your job. Yeah, I mean, right. And it's still, it's still a better outcome than you know, all these innocent people getting blown away uh, because nothing was done. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a compound full of dead Nazis is much prefer more preferable than all those kids that got blown up, you know? But, you know, looking back, 2020. And also, like, with, like, they hadn't been retrained, did someone not speak up and say, hey, you know, we might have something here. Can we go ahead and get that retraining now because shit's about to pop off? I think it's more bureaucratic than that. Because there were things, there I mean, were I get certain it, things but... that got passed through Congress and whatnot regarding the whole Waco issue and, and things. I mean, it was you know it was until years later that things actually got passed through as laws and whatnot. I just think at some point you need to speak up and say, "Hey, we, we have something about to go down. You either give us permission or you take the hit on this." And I don't know. I mean, I, I again, it's like Dave said, it's hindsight, but still, like, how do you just sit back and know? Oh, yeah, something's going down, but well, we haven't been retrained, so we'll just sit back and let this happen. Well, we're going to talk about it at the end uh, with how the investigation into the actual bombing itself goes. But with that and with this incident, I mean, there were tons of ATF agents saying we need to go in there. Like Mm -hmm. we need to go raid these guys. But it's all higher ups in the bureaucratic aspect of it saying, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, that's a shame. Pretty unfortunate. Back at the home of Michael Fortier, McVeigh forged a driver's license using the alias Robert Kling so that he could rent the rider truck. McVeigh chose the name Kling because he knew a soldier with that name that kind of looked like him, and because we know that McVeigh was super into Star Wars and Star Trek, and the warriors from Star Trek are Klingons. (laughs) Fucking nerd. (laughs) You know, you think something so serious like this, you know, they think they're huge fucking patriots, they might have an alias, you know, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, something. No, Star Trek nerds. 
fucking Klingon names. Imagine being that soldier he knew that was named Kling. Also true, And then you're yeah. like, this fucking guy took my name for this shit? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'd be fucking livid. Yeah, I'd be yeah. flipping tables over that. Also, it was a lot easier to get uh, fake IDs back in those days. I had a fake ID from Hawaii when I was in high school. <laughs> was, really? was, your, was your name McLovin? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember because what my I name believe was. That, I believe McLovin's was from Hawaii as well. I think you're right. I think I just had my real name. No, it was not in the 60s, Mike. Fuck you. I didn't say it was. You, you were teeing it up, though. No, actually, my mind went straight to McLovin because I thought you were making a joke. I thought you were making a joke because his his thing, I believe, is That's from right. Hawaii. I think you're right. No, you could just go downtown to a shop, you know, downtown Cleveland, sign you right yeah. up. I don't think you can do that or anymore. Go, or go find uh, Creed Bratton in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he makes fake <laughs> ideas as well. <laughs> as documented on The Office. This next set of evidence is 100% proven and detailed in FBI documents based on McVeigh using a calling card to make long-distance phone calls. On April 5, 1995, McVeigh called Elohim City for just under two minutes. Robert Millar's daughter-in-law was the one who answered the phone, and she told the FBI that McVeigh was looking for Andy the German. Hey, does his daughter-in-law sound the- like David, too? <laughs> sure, hello, why not? Hello, Elohim City, how can I help you? <laughs> Speaking of phone sex, can you imagine calling a phone sex line and you get her? (laughs) That burner would go 12 to 6 real quick. I would really love to put my tongue in your asshole. (laughs) Are you playing with your pee-pee right now? (laughs) Well, that's true. In this family, you got to imagine the brother and sister probably had phone sex together, right? <laughs> Dave, we'll let you work on that one for a little bit while Ian tells the story. <laughs> so much potential. Now, the reason that this phone call is so important to the story is because this call to Elohim City was right after McVeigh made a call to a rental place in Kingman, Arizona about renting a rider truck. McVeigh also made another call to Elohim City immediately after successfully renting the rider truck in Junction City, Kansas. So this evidence is suggesting that McVeigh was either keeping Elohim City in the loop on his progress or he was reporting back to whoever was in charge of the plan. Clearly. A few days after the April 5th call, McVeigh was seen at a Tulsa strip club called Lady Godiva's. A stripper there that night specifically remembered McVeigh because when she was giving him a lap dance, he told her to remember his face because on April 19th, 1995, she would never forget it. The security cameras in the dressing room also recorded audio, and this woman is recorded telling coworkers about what McVeigh said. Workers at the strip club said McVeigh was also with, quote, an annoying German and a man with olive skin. And now we can finally get into John Doe number two. Ian has been waiting to talk about John Doe number two <laughs> since we started <laughs> Ruby Ridge four and a half years ago when this whole series started. Let's get into John Doe number two. So like we talked about in part one, on April 17th, 1995, McVeigh went into Junction City, Kansas, and checked into the Dreamland Motel and went to Elliott's Body Shop to rent the rider truck. Also in part one, we said that once investigators made their way to Elliott's Body Shop, a sketch of McVeigh was done, and all three witnesses said he wasn't alone, which provided the still unknown sketch of John Doe number two. All the witnesses agreed on his appearance, short, stocky, with tan or olive skin, and a tattoo on his left arm. What's really weird is that the first sketch of John Doe 2 is completely wrong, and none of those witnesses 
they all say that that is not the guy that they saw, and no one really knows how that sketch was produced. The, there was a second sketch made of John Doe number two, and that is said to be spot on to what all the eyewitnesses said. They're like, that's the guy. We don't know where the fuck that first sketch came from, but that second one is the guy. That's interesting, huh? What do we think? I guess we don't know. Hmm. Yeah, we yeah, it's 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 a real it's a mystery on how that first sketch was was provided because it, it was based off of it's like they didn't even listen to anything the eyewitnesses said, but then the second one was spot on. A property owner in Missouri said a couple months before the bombing, McVeigh, Nichols, and John Doe too showed up inquiring about the property because it had a cave, which you could assume maybe would be a hideout spot. This guy had photographic memory, even remembering McVeigh's slightly discolored eye tooth and fillings. And, and this guy was like spot on with his remembering of everybody there. That's very specific. It's a good hideout living in a cave. You guys would probably like that being the outdoorsman you are. Oh man, I would fucking eat that shit up. I'd love to like just go out and like kill animals and just like eat them like over a fire <laughs> and like just sleep and have like any rodent insect or part of mother nature just be able to violate me in any way possible. That's the fucking life, man. I just I want to be outdoors so much. It's the best. <laughs> just living off the land, right? Just living off what, yeah. God, what God made for you. Man, and left on the I earth. love having like no plumbing and no way to bathe. Like that's the best way to live. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, let's go live in a cave for like a week and we'll document it and put it out as a bonus episode. Yeah, I feel like it would be similar to Michael Scott's uh, I was just gonna outdoors say that. trip in the office. <laughs> it would... It would be a mix of Michael Scott and then like Blair Witch Project. Me and you like hugging each other, snot dripping out of our noses, scared to death because we heard like we heard like a bunny hop by and we're like, "What the fuck was that?" Yeah, I feel like I would be I'd be all right until nighttime, and I'd be like, "Fuck this, let's go. <laughs> we need to go yeah. find a hotel or something." Yeah, right. Let's go find a hotel and a case of Miller Lite and just have fucking twelve pack of tacos. Have a good time. Yeah. Take a David Millar with you and be quiet and hunt wabbits. <laughs> yeah. He's if he could come with us, I'd I'd make the trip because I'd feel safe with him. That guy's got his shit together. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> well, at this meeting for this property with the cave, John Doe too gave his name as Robert Jacks, but that's proven to be an alias. Lending more credibility to that name is that Robert Jacks was found written in Marifay Nichols' address book with the last name Jacks written in multiple different spellings. Everything's adding up here. That's a lot of evidence. And I, I feel like we should say too, this none of all this evidence came out in 2010. I want to say. Is that right? Between 2000, between 2010 and 2013, the FBI released a lot of the. Uh, a lot of documents for Freedom of Information Act requests. And that's where all this comes from. Mm. Interesting. I say because I don't remember hearing about any of this stuff way back then. Or a lot yeah, of it. It's, really, it's a lot of recent. It, yeah. The FBI said that all three witnesses at Elliott's Body Shop confused the day that they saw John Doe number two. The FBI said that John Doe number two was actually a guy named Todd Bunting that had come into the shop the day after McVeigh was there to get work done. This is. This claim is absolutely ridiculous because all three witnesses said that they personally knew Todd Bunting from the community, and there's no way that they would confuse something like that. The FBI is like, nope, you're wrong. Yeah, we're just going to change reality for you. Yeah, nope, sorry, you. That's not him. I mean, you, it, it's. Go ahead. No, I would say it's it's 
you know, it's either sloppy FBI work, laziness, or something sinister, I think. Yeah, I mean, and uh, well, I'll save my opinion for the end as we keep going through yeah. this. On April 15th, 1995, a Chinese food delivery guy named Jeff Davis took food to the Dreamland Motel room, and someone other than McVeigh answered the door. He described this man to fit the description of John Doe number two. All right, another eyewitness. On April 16th, 1995, the owner of the Dreamland Motel said she heard multiple voices coming from McVeigh's room and that multiple people had independent access to McVeigh's room. One of the voices she heard was a, quote, velvety male voice that was the same one that she recognized placing a phone call to the front office for McVeigh. Interesting. Velvety. Yeah, yeah that's, an, that's a, that's that's new, that's a right? description. Yeah. Hello there. Please hold I think someone, Timothy. <laughs> some would say that Ian had a velvety voice oh, in his yeah. uh, narration mm. of some of these stories. I've heard that before. The velvety, <laughs> docile tones of Ian. <laughs> as opposed to the obnoxious chalkboard tones of Mike. <laughs> Ian voice, panty dropper. Mike's voice, panty putter on her. Yep. Well, unless you're a dude. I mean, dropping trowel for me every day. <laughs> dropping dropping trowel Mike. That was his uh, nickname in college. <laughs> Absolutely was from my freshman to sophomore year except it meant that he did it during class so i don't say what you will <laughs> what's really interesting about the second sketch of john doe 2 is it shares a lot of similarities to the aryan republican army bank robber we talked about last week richard guthrie if we remember guthrie was the one who drew a swastika on the side of a navy ship and got himself kicked out of the military and then went on to join the ara robbing banks potentially with mcveigh involved that's right. There was a whole like a whole bunch of bank robberies that we were like, McVeigh might be a part of these. He might not. We weren't quite sure, but he loosely had connections to the people involved. Right. There was evidence that shows that they attended a lot of the same gun shows and they were in Arizona in 95 at the same time. And McVeigh was bragging about robbing banks. So if him bragging to his sister about robbing banks was true, he would have 100 percent been doing it with the ARA and Richard Guthrie. We'll be right back. We like to drink beer. A lot of it. After a long night of drinking and talking crime and conspiracies, there's nothing that wakes us up and gets us ready to start the day better than Just Brew Coffee. With a great selection of roast levels to choose from, you're guaranteed to find one that suits your style. Small batch roasted to highlight the unique features of each coffee bean, Just Brew Coffee caters to both casual and hardcore coffee drinkers alike. Since 2010, Just Brew Coffee has worked tirelessly to perfect the roasting process and technique, which has resulted in seriously delicious, always flavorful, and never bitter-tasting coffee. If you're already drinking JBC, raise your mug. If you're not, raise your standards. Check out their online store at youjustbrew.com and up your coffee game today. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your order of two pounds or more. And remember, they roast, you just brew. Today's episode of Necronomapod is brought to you by Beardology. There are a lot of imitators out there, but there's only one place I buy my beard oil. Beardology beard oil nourishes your skin and won't leave you with that greasy feel. With over 17 cents available in their extensive product line, I trust my beard to Beardology. You can find Beardology at beardology.co. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Beardology, discover the best way to avoid the shave. 
the day before the bombing on April 18th, according to McVeigh, he and Nichols loaded up all the bomb-making materials from the storage unit and went to Geary Lake State Park to Kansas to build it. There is eyewitness accounts that place them at the park, but I think it's pretty far-fetched that the two of them built this whole bomb in just one day. In my opinion, I think they were probably putting the finishing touches on it or something, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. That night, Nichols went home, and McVeigh slept in the truck with the bomb. Wouldn't you be scared shitless sleeping in that fucking bomb? Or in that truck with the bomb? I know. That doesn't sound like the most ideal sleeping arrangement. No, of course not. I would be a wreck all night. But, I, I, I mean, I when guess I, if you're okay with blowing up all those kids, your brain probably doesn't fucking work the same way as normal people's, though. Yeah. I know when I was writing this, I'm like, too bad the fucking bomb didn't just go off while his ass was sleeping in it. Right. On April 19th, 1995, the day of the bombing, the first sightings of the Ryder truck were around 8 a.m., and at least 24 eyewitnesses saw the truck over the next hour, with almost all of them reporting it was in a convoy with a yellow Mercury marquee, which we know was the getaway car, a brown truck, and a white sedan. Three separate witnesses said a man with a military haircut and a man with olive or tan skin were driving the Ryder truck and asked them for directions to the mirror building, which, if accurate, leaves you thinking, who the hell was driving the getaway car? So it's more evidence for that third person, clearly. The man working at the convenience store a little ways away from the mirror building said that McVeigh came in around 8.40 a.m. and bought two Cokes and a pack of cigarettes, even though McVeigh didn't smoke. When the convenience store worker saw the Ryder truck, he asked McVeigh if he was moving in, and McVeigh said no. The convenience worker also said that he watched McVeigh get into the Ryder truck, and there was another man with Oliver Tan's skin sitting in the passenger seat waiting. Wow. So that's just witness after witness of this Olive Tan skin guy. Right, and if we remember, according to the official story... McVeigh was by himself. If you go by the FBI's official story and everything in the trial, McVeigh was by himself this day. There was nobody else there supposedly with him. Mm. Witnesses who saw this convoy of vehicles driving also saw them driving in and out of the parking lot underneath the mirror building. We know that McVeigh did try to park it underneath the parking garage, but the rider truck was too tall to fit. So all we this know that recon, from his own statements. Yeah, all this recon work they did, they didn't bother measuring the fucking entrance height. Yeah, so that's yeah, we're going to get through that here. It it once they realized that it wasn't going to fit, it was almost like, "Oh fuck, the plan, we got to figure something else out here." Mm. Because witnesses said they just saw this convoy of vehicles, the, the Mercury, the brown truck, the white sedan and the rider truck just going all over around the mirror building after this point, like trying to figure it, it almost looked like they were trying to figure out what the hell to do. Mm. What seemed to be the potential backup plan was to park it in an alley closer to the courthouse. A state trooper as eyewitness and saw the rider truck pull into the alley and then back up. Once they noticed the alley was blocked by a U.S. Marshals truck. That's not suspicious at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the other thing about this is it's only two years after the uh, the World Trade Center bombing in 93 that they used a fucking rider truck, to, you know, underground. So, yeah, you just yeah. It's, it seems like they'd be on the lookout for that on the lookout. But, you know, a, a trooper or whoever else sees a rider truck, you know, acting. You might of, you might just want to stop and ask him a couple questions yeah, like, hey, exactly. why are you pulling in here and backing out? Why are you been pulling out of this parking garage multiple times with this convoy? Yes, it is. Again, it's it's hindsight, but still, you would think maybe somebody would be on the lookout. 
But I think like we also said, what was it last week or was it the, in, in part one, like the security at this building was just not like non-existent, That's right? True. Like there was, yeah. there was barely any security. Like half the day there was not even security. Right, right. I mean, you just yeah, they you, had one guard at a time. Yeah, and that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you contrast it now with all the security in place, you know, at federal buildings. I just I can't imagine how this was the case back then. I I've done security work in my day at much smaller facilities, and we never had just one person working unless it was you know like the dead of night. So it just baffles me that a federal building that's getting traffic all day would have one person on on duty. I agree. Well, and that's where you get the conspiracy stuff with this whole story. Like, if you go down any of the routes of conspiracy shit, it, not I mean, yeah, they had the they had the one guard a day, and it was left uh, it was left unguarded five hours a day. Other than that, but the the big thing with the conspiracy stuff comes in when, like we said in part one, they had security cameras all over that fucking place. They installed them ten years prior to this happening, and for that full ten years, they were never plugged in and working because it saved on the budget. So it's crazy. It's absolutely so you, insane. Yeah. It's also so crazy to me that there was still five hours a day where it was unguarded. Like that's, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Well, and initially like initial or initial like news reporting of this was said like, okay, they have like the secret service. It's like, okay, they have, uh, they have security cameras. So the secret service is going to look at it. And then all of a sudden the news is reporting, well, no, they don't have video. And then you get the conspiracies of like, oh, well, they're hiding the tapes and it's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's straight up incompetent, governmental incompetence that is, you know, and then it sparks conspiracy theory, but yeah, it saved $40 a month in the budget to, to have those cameras <laughs> turned off. Hmm. That, yeah, I, I just, I find it hard to believe. I don't, I don't know. It's baffling. That's the well, that's that's baffling. why that's yeah. why that's why shit like this happens. Then you know you got these cameras and there's no security, no oversight, and you have essentially, like you said, Dave, the same situation that happened two years prior happens here, and no one did shit about it or even attempted to do anything about it. Fine. When they finally figured out where they were going to park it, and it was initially parked in the handicapped spot on the Mirror Building's north side under the daycare center, witnesses said the Mercury Marquee and the brown truck were parked on the sides of it. Witnesses also said that there was a woman with blonde hair giving directions to the rider truck, helping it back up. This is thought to be Aryan Republic Army bank robber Pete Langan, dressed as a woman. As we covered in part two, Langan was on his way to transitioning into a woman, and all these guys knew, at minimum, that he dressed in women's clothing. Oklahoma City part two available in the archives. <laughs> you know what I was thinking with this? <laughs> what, if, what if they didn't know? before that he dresses a woman and then he showed up his days like this is me coming out to everybody and they're like okay we don't even have fucking time to deal right. with you right now we're, we're oh. gonna go bomb this and then we'll figure it out later <laughs> that'd be brilliant because then it's just like there, like there's no heat on you there's no pressure like everyone's just focused on their task at hand and you're just like hey this is what it is now and they're like okay well we gotta get this job done and then that's it. <laughs> and then like hours later they're like sipping on beers and like hey wait so what happened earlier like Pete, we don't have time for this right now. We got to go through with the bombing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, white supremacists are known for their open and welcoming ways, so I don't think they would mind at all. Yeah, not right. at all. <laughs> it's not such a all. strange aspect to the story with Pete Langland be, or Pete Langan being able to uh, to do that openly, and these guys still deal with them. It's weird. Yeah, it is. As long as he's white, right? That's the main thing. Yeah, I guess I'm so. Sure, I guess. Yeah. So, so between McVeigh. 
John Doe number two, who's allegedly in the Ryder truck with him, the two vehicles in the convoy, and Peter Langan, we're, we're at five people now potentially involved in this. Right. At least the day you, of on scene, we're at five people potentially. Yeah, because I mean, you got you, you've got the Ryder truck that, according to eyewitnesses, has McVeigh and John Doe number two in it. Then you've got whoever's driving the Mercury Marquis. Someone's driving a brown truck, and someone's driving a white sedan. So yeah, you've got five people potentially. Yeah. Right. The main witness to all this, with the the blonde-haired woman backing up the Ryder truck and all that was a guy watching from the fourth floor of the building, and he made specific note of the Mercury Marquis because he used to own one of those cars himself, and he thought to himself what a piece of shit car it was. <laughs> and he specifically thought after seeing, like, oh, yeah, I remember having that piece of shit car. Then he noticed a rider truck parked in the handicapped spot and thought, like, what an asshole move that is. you know. So that's a specific memory for this eyewitness to see all this happening. It's an interesting tidbit. It's a brief side note. Mm-hmm. I haven't done one all episode, so fucking I'm going to do it. You guys ever hear the Adam Sandler song, Piece of Shit Car? <laughs> no. It's really fucking good. It's off one of his early albums. Anyways, highly recommend it. Look that up. If, <laughs> that uh, sounds familiar. I think I have heard that. It's really fucking funny. <laughs> it was off one of his first few uh, comedy albums. Anyways, as you were, Ian. If we remember from part one, we covered the story of Dana Bradley. She was the woman that had to have her leg amputated at the, at the knee to be rescued. And her whole family killed. Yeah. That was awful. Including a newborn son. Yeah. And that was the doctor that, like, fucking, he ran out of, what was it, like, scalpels or something and pulled a pocket yeah. knife out of his and just started ha- hacking away. And they tried to pull him out. And he was like, no, I'm finishing this job. Yeah, that guy was, like, the hero of the day. He wouldn't leave yeah. that because they, they got warning of a second bomb. And he was like, nope, I'm not leaving. Right. It's like the one shining spot in all of these stories. And Dana Bradley said when she was walking into the building that morning, she saw a guy matching John Doe number two get out of the rider truck and quickly walk away. Almost immediately after her account, a truck driver had to swerve out of the way and miss two people who walked out into the road. One he identified as McVeigh, and the other fit the description of John Doe two. I mean, at this time, we're at like the 25th sighting of this guy at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's not just that day. It's multiple days leading up to this yeah. that he has seen with McVeigh. And the description matches for every descri- every uh, eyewitness account. And like I said, this wasn't, this is all new information. Like these are all independent eyewitness accounts. This wasn't, the, Dana Bradley's was made public back in, in the 90s when, like when I said to go listen to Art Bell's episode, um, her her account of John Doe 2 was made public. But all these other people, these are all independent eyewitness accounts that were sealed in the FBI documents that just got released a couple years ago. So it's not like contaminated where people are like, oh yeah, and I saw him too, and you know, yeah. kind of false remembering things. Like, no, these are all independent eyewitnesses. Now, after the bomb went off and McVeigh was arrested, like we talked about in part one, it raises the questions of why McVeigh was found alone in the Mercury Marquis and why it didn't have license plates. If the woman backing up the rider truck really was P- Peter Langan and John Doe too was Richard Guthrie, you could assume that they were running this like a bank robbery. It could have been that McVeigh wasn't supposed to be driving the Marquis for very long, that it was just a drop car and the real getaway car was what he was on his way to. And he's just an idiot and forgot to put the license plates on it since it was recently purchased. Didn't he, though, if I remember from part one, and I'm probably wrong because 
usually I am. Didn't he drive the marquee though for like a, a like several hundred miles? Like wasn't he pretty far away? Like it wasn't a close drop. Sixty miles away. Okay, was when so he was it wasn't, arrested. Okay, it, it wasn't still pretty far. far away, still but... pretty far. Like if you're going to get a drop car, you would think you wouldn't have to go sixty miles. Yeah, it's a good point. I liked it better when it was several hundred in my mind. You can fix that in editing. You can make it whatever you want, Mike. Several hundred miles. <laughs> just plug that in wherever you guys need. I mean, that that theory makes, you know, it, it has a little bit of credibility to it because the license plates for the marquee were found left behind in the storage unit where all the bomb-making materials were kept back in Kansas. So there is, you know, the possibility that he is just a fucking moron and forgot to put him on the car. Sloppy. The other idea is that McVeigh was the martyr and he was supposed to get caught. When he was arrested, he was found with pages of the Turner Diaries and a bunch of other right-wing literature, almost like a manifesto. And he was also armed and could have killed the police officer who pulled him over, but he didn't put up a fight. I think that's the most telling of all, is that he obviously could have killed that cop. He was a trained combat veteran, and he allowed himself to be taken in while he was you know, strapped to the firearm i think that says it all yeah you just blew up a fucking federal building man you ain't worrying about shooting cops well so not necessarily because many believe that lee harvey oswald was a patsy and he really only got caught one of the main reasons why he got caught was that he shot a police officer after he left the scene of the crime after shooting kennedy and then they they fucking tracked him to a movie theater and that's how they caught him so i mean you could you could commit this hein- a heinous crime and then still you know be worried about your protection and shoot a cop. I guess is my point. That's a good point. Maybe the difference is that Oswald didn't know he was the Patsy, where McVeigh knew he was and was kind of taking That's on true. a martyr role. And yep, and uh, I think that could be a whole conversation left for maybe a future Kennedy episode if we ever d- decide to yeah, you know sure. dedicate. 18 episodes to that fucking deep dive. Was Oswald the lone gunman, Mike? I do not believe so. I don't either. Yeah. Ian? I'm not well-versed in JFK. Believe At the very not. least, I think it takes, at least in the 1960s, I think it took it takes more than one man to kill the president of the United States. So I guess I'll leave it at that. But I, I, I think there was probably more than one shooter, and it probably was quite deep as to who was involved in it. Is what I think. I agree with that. If we keep going down the the Patsy road, you know, it makes sense that McVeigh would be the face of this to the public. He was a war veteran with medals who had never been arrested before. The most he ever had was a speeding ticket. And you couldn't put any of these other guys up front to the public to give jailhouse interviews like McVeigh was to 60 Minutes and stuff. I mean, Guthrie and Langan were bank robbers. Andy the German was just this really aggressive asshole. Dennis Mahan is a straight-up international terrorist, and David Millar legit sounds like Elmer Fudd. 48. Are you going to tell me that David Millar couldn't be the spokesman for this? <laughs> he could not be, no. Hey, now that's ridiculous what you said. I find the government to be reprehensible. <laughs> hey, David, what's the, what's the number they can call if people want to report some, uh, some, some minority doing something they shouldn't be doing? I just meant the Oasis hotline. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Um, one eight hundred. Call up a Oasis. Dial Oasis. <laughs> Dial Oasis hotline. 
<laughs> Hello, Oasis Hotline. Can I help you? <laughs> well, and then to- on top of all these people we just talked about that are like speculated, I guess, to be. I mean, they were involved with McVeigh. They were, but there's no charges or anything. Then you get to the two guys that were actually that we're going to get into that were charged with this. Fortier was a fucking meth head, and Terry Nichols would never shut up about being a sovereign citizen and all his other bullshit. So there was nobody. Of course, McVeigh is. Out of all these people, he's the most well-spoken to put in front. And he's a war hero. Come, you know. Yeah. And, and Ian, when you Ian see, what, is, uh, what does Art Bell think of sovereign citizens? Uh, he does not like them at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's putting it lightly. That's, that's, a, that's a classic episode. That's one of your favorite ones. With it's the, it's the one Freeman. of the best ones. Yeah. The, uh, the Montana, the Freeman standoff, which was what? Yeah. From like 95, right? Was it 95? Yeah, it's right remember. around this time. Is it that Bundy it's right guy? around here? That Bundy guy? No, it's another one. Um, hold on, now I'm gonna find it. But it was—it's not like a spooky episode at all. It is literally just Art Bell taking calls from sovereign citizens and then like regular citizens, and then he, at one point he lets them debate, and he just—you know—in his Art Bell way, he's very condescending to the. Uh, the sovereign citizens. It looks like it's the the Montana Freeman standoff from March twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six. Oh, wait. So back it's about down. a year okay. about a year after this. Yeah. Hmm. I the whole episode is available. You can find it online if you search hard enough. But it's fucking it's it's great. It's classic art bell. Yeah, he just straight up hangs up on that guy that compares the U.S. to China. <laughs> oh yeah, laughing oh, he, at him. <laughs> he will have none of that. He will have none of that. Goddamn right, art bell is a fucking American hero. <laughs> Put up with that bullshit. The greatest thing I've ever learned from Necronomapod is Art Bell. It really is my favorite thing I've learned from the show. Like I, it's the it's the one thing that I go back and still listen to, and and just I love his show. It's like everything about that. I don't necessarily go back and read up on Ed Gein or Ed Kemper or right. f- certainly not Albert Fish, but Albert Bell or Albert Bell. <laughs> Art Bell, I go back and fucking listen to those shows all the time. I remember when we first Albert started Be- talking about it, and you're like, "Who's uh, who's Art Bell?" Or like, "Whoa, yeah. no idea, no fucking clue." <laughs> For the record, Albert Bell is the greatest Cleveland Indian of all time. <laughs> I will st- I will stand by that to the day I die. You know the other thing too about just who who would be put in front here when arrests were made. Nichols, you could tell like, he was absolutely terrified when he was arrested. You know, I mean, he so looked did like he a just, deer caught in lights. Did he just think it was not actually going to happen until it happened? I think like, do you he think knew. he was just doubting the whole thing? Or did he think McVeigh would chicken out? Or was he just kind of bullied into it? I don't He says he was bullied into it. I don't know if I believe it. I feel like he's just distancing or trying to distance himself from it. So you think he was down with it and then just got scared after the fact? Yeah, I mean, after he's arrested, you can see, like, he looks like a deer caught in headlights. But on the other, I mean, McVeigh, on the other hand, he is, you can, he is absolutely proud of what he did. And he has no problem saying it. And it's almost, some of his stuff is almost like it's rehearsed. Like, he he was told what to say in certain situations. Hmm. Mm, That's right. Regarding all the eyewitness testimony about multiple people, the FBI flat out said that the witnesses were just wrong. And the ones that wouldn't recant their statements to say that they just saw McVeigh that day weren't called into trial. Uh, They wanted a clean-cut conviction and just put the whole thing to rest. 
again, very similar to uh, the Kennedy assassination. Oh, yeah. With with uh, ignoring and bullying witnesses into shutting up. Like the Warren Commission stuff? Well, I just think, it, it, like, you know, with the fact of, like, where they heard shots coming from, you know, and, like, the... Uh, the grassy knoll and there were several eyewitnesses that said they saw like a flash and they heard sounds and, and just the the fbi and the police just ignored that and said no you didn't you didn't you know you didn't hear that and kind of bullied him into it yeah. and it's the same thing with the bobby kennedy assassination there was a lot of witnesses there that they kind of bullied into submission and uh you know ignored their their statements yeah when it doesn't just to kind of fit the narrative to, yeah right it's like the the fbi kind of has their narrative ahead of time and then they make the facts fit that Terry Nichols got scared and turned himself in a couple of days after he got word that the address of his brother's farm was used at the Dreamland Motel when McVeigh checked in. For his role in the bombing, Nichols is currently serving a life sentence at the ADX Florence Supermax Prison in Colorado. Michael Fortier had his sentence reduced for being the star witness for the FBI and was only sentenced to 12 years for his role. Wasn't his wife implicated as also having advanced knowledge of all this? Yeah, I mean, McVeigh flat out showed her how he was going to build the bomb. I mean, he showed her the whole plan mm-hmm. and like laid it out with soup cans and shit, yeah. how he was going to do While he it. was banging her, right? He was still banging her, too. No, he was banging Mara Faye. That was Nichols' wife. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, Nichols shit. Mail order bride wife. Mike, okay. Mike that was me. That's who he was, was me. I was banging uh, 48. Oh, it was President Clinton. <laughs> That's okay. right. After McVeigh's trial, the jury deliberated for three hours before finding him guilty on all charges and about another three hours to put him to death. And, you know, I brought up 60 Minutes a little while ago. He was very vocal about everything, super proud of what he did, would talk to anybody who would, who would listen to him or put him on camera about it. And on June 11th, 2001, Timothy McVeigh was put to death by lethal injection. Yeah, I mean, he considered himself a, you know, fucking martyr, a patriot hero of this country. Yep. What do you think, Mike? Should we left As, him alive? Well, hold on. I was searching. Here we go. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I like busting his balls on death penalty stuff. <laughs> As you guys were talking about that, I had I had found earlier Timothy McVeigh's last meal, and so I was trying to pull it up because I always find it interesting what their last meal. Yeah, was. for sure. Anything good? Two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. That's it. That is all that comes up. Hmm. What a fucking lame last meal. <laughs> of yeah. course this asshole would eat something like that. Uh, to answer your question, Dave, um, I feel like if you are someone who is morally against the death penalty, you are against it in all situations, which would be me. At the same time, I do not... Uh, I would I would find it hard to argue with people who felt that this man should be put to death. Good answer. That is my politically correct statement on this one. <laughs> I like it. If someone was going to be put to death, I feel as if this might be one of the more deserving ones. But that being said, I am against the death penalty, period. Also, you should be put to death if your last meal is two pints of fucking (laughs) mint chocolate chip ice cream. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mint chocolate chip ice cream is my favorite ice cream. That's not my last fucking meal. (laughs) What a jackass thing to request. Yeah. I wonder what the meaning behind that was, if anything. Maybe people just don't want to shit yourself all that food after the (laughs) when you're dying. I mean, what? It's not your problem to clean up. Like, what does it matter? It's true. Maybe you don't want to go out like that. Have we discussed last meals on this show? I feel like we probably have at this point. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think a couple times. Fuck, I feel like mine would change. Would they ever give someone alcohol for their last meal? Have they ever done that? 
I feel yeah, like yeah, we don't. talked about that in, per, in Peter, or at least back in Peter Curtin's day, because they gave him two bottles of wine. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. back in the old days, not anymore. I feel like I would just have like two cases of beer and like you know two or three bottles of whiskey, and I'd just drink myself to death and not have to worry about the next day. It's a solid plan. I don't, I don't feel like they're going to do that nowadays. No, They'd be like, motherfucker, no. motherfucker, you can have one beer with your two pints of ice cream. I don't know if it's all of Texas or if it's just a certain area, but I know at least somewhere in Texas they stopped the the final meals because guys were abusing it. So they just mm. said, fuck it, everybody's done, you're not getting shit. You're getting a Damn. frozen encore Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah. You're done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my uh my senior year of college, the art department, one of the specific classes did a whole gallery on final meals and it kind of like, you know, documented different people's final meals, um, had like videos of, of people's final meals. And I remember it was really cool just to see like what people would pick and, you know, like how, like kind of big they would be because it's your final meal. So of course you're going to go all out, like seeing people order like, you know, a cheeseburger plus three or four slices of pizza and mac and cheese and jello and <laughs> chocolate milk and you know whatever else but it was just cool to see the whole art department did like different pieces on actual final meals that people did and i don't know for whatever reason that just always stuck with me as just being kind of very interesting it's very interesting it's just yeah. a, a slice into you know crazy people's minds yeah well as for the rest of our cast of characters the past couple weeks is this where we run the credits, Ian? This is yeah. where the credits come up. This <laughs> yeah. is like the like you said, Ian, the end of the movie where we like show flashbacks of the people and then it like <laughs> pops up with like what happened to right. them. <laughs> Roger Moore still maintains he had no knowledge of the bomb plot and was straight up robbed by McVeigh Nichols. Andy the German took off back to Germany after the bombing happened and is still alive. Elohim City is still running strong by Robert Millar's son. What was that guy's name? David? Yeah, it was very, very traumatic, and but I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm ready for the waste war. <laughs> Richard Guthrie, who many speculate could have been John Doe too, hung himself in prison while incarcerated for unrelated charges. Well, so at least Peter, he's dead. Yeah, he's he's not around anymore. Peter Langland is serving a life sentence after a deadly shootout with the police, and Dennis Mahan is serving a 40-year sentence from a separate February 26, 2004 bombing attempt on Scottsdale Office of Diversity. Like I said earlier, that guy is a very dangerous individual. Yeah, it sounds like it. No happy when ending. When was he there. sentenced, Ian? When is Dennis Mahan like scheduled to be released or is he just going to die in prison? Uh, I think he's I would say he's probably going to die in prison. But his his group that he started in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, his, his little racist group out there, they're still very much active and, and functioning to this day. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Go pay him a visit, I guess. <laughs> you let us know how that goes, pal. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that is the Oklahoma City bombing. Damn. <laughs> this was six it's... intense weeks that we just got through. This was a little bit of a change of pace for us to kind of go through more... Uh, Modern day stuff dealing with the government and standoffs with the American people and domestic terrorism here. And this it's was a, a fucking wild ride. Just as relevant as ever now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, unfortunately. We did not time that. It just kind of happened, unfortunately. 
That's it's just a, it's such a fascinating chain of events, starting with even just starting with the histories of these groups back in you know the late sixties, seventies, and then getting to Ruby Ridge and just how it all sparks into this whole saga that's all intertwined. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it really is kind of just the connections between them and it's just kind of how it goes from like, you know, you go from like, I think we when we talked about Ruby Ridge and, you know, it can be debated, but in a lot of ways, the government was at fault. And then maybe at Waco, you know, both sides made a lot of mistakes and not to say that Ruby Ridge, they didn't either. And then you get to a situation like this with Oklahoma City, where it's just straight up, you know, domestic terrorism and innocent people are killed because of, you know, past mistakes by everybody. Well, and it's terrifying just the lengths that, uh, you know, some of these internal domestic groups will go to to get their point across. Right. And, and it's not even like all these groups went away after this happened or anything. I mean, this just made them go underground until recently. In recent years, they've, for certain reasons, they've been more comfortable to be more vocal about their stuff. That is very true. Ian, you got any last thoughts, anything else you want to get out about Oklahoma City? Anything uh, we should touch on and clean up, or what do you got? I don't think so. I think the biggest thing I said wrong, and I don't even know if I corrected myself, was in went during Waco with the whole Hellfire trigger thing. I thought it made it, the internet told me it made it louder, but I was wrong on that. Uh, I think it makes it shoot faster, from what I was told. I don't really remember. Fully, well, there we go. We cleaned that shit up. Like I said, I, I love reading about this subject. the the whole The whole saga of it's super interesting, especially with all this evidence on these people are intertwined and super interesting. And I think my if I had if I had to land somewhere on it, I would say McVeigh was the patsy for this. He was he was gonna he was chosen to be the no martyr. a known patsy though. Like he accepted that role. Yeah, yeah. He knew it, and he was fine with that. And uh, and he was chosen. It's it's more, I guess it's more uh, juicy to think of, you know, Guthrie and Langan being involved in it being like this bomb plot, you know, this hybrid bomb plot with a bank, you know, heist getaway kind of thing. But I think all those guys were involved that day. There's too many eyewitnesses that put multiple people there. But I, I do, I think McVeigh was probably the martyr for all of it. I think I would agree with you, probably. Dave, what say you? I agree with that narrative completely. Absolutely. You got any other final thoughts on this one or the whole last six weeks? Anything you want to clean up, touch on, put to shame? No, I, I think it was uh, I think it was well researched. So kudos to you, Ian. Yeah, very well done. I think it was sir. a good good story. It's interesting how everything weaves in and out of each other. And uh, I don't know what did this really accomplish at the end of the day? Nothing. It really, I mean, like when you when you tell all three stories back to back it's like okay you're, you're seeing all this stuff that the government's doing wrong and you can you know have a conversation about it and then mcveigh does this and then that conversation's gone at that point because yeah. it's like right you're the biggest piece of shit out of this whole fucking couple year saga of events yeah you proved nothing. oh absolutely no doubt about it mcveigh and all of his you know all the cronies here working behind the scenes right you know andy the german roger moore Terry Nichols. And let me just yeah, say that, that the fact that this fucking David Millar guy, this Elmer Fudd motherfucker, thinks that he's somehow <laughs> part of the master race is just laughable. <laughs> I don't, these people oh. that think they're better than, you know, every other race are just. 
They're clearly genetic inferiors in many ways. <laughs> in so many ways. In so many ways. Can we, Dave, can we hear him one more time? Just at least a few minutes of him or just like a, a little bit? Just one more time. This is an actual, this is not us doing a gimmick. This is actual him. This is from a couple years ago. Too. This is pretty recent. Yeah. And <laughs> hit it. When I read some of the papers about us, I'm like, these sound like bad people. I wouldn't want to be there. But yet it's me they're talking about, and I know we're not like that at all. There you go. <laughs> so that's it. That's the that's the superior human being right there. Yep, you hear that? That guy thinks he's better than you. Yeah. Those those genes need to be preserved. We can't. Yeah, that's right. Can't blend those with any other races. Those <laughs> got to be preserved. <laughs> fucking idiots. I fucking hate white supremacists. All right, boys. Let's. Uh, as Dave said earlier today, let's land this plane. We are at patreon.com slash necronomapod. We've been getting a whole bunch of new subscribers. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much to Jennabel, Emily Howard, Renata Macy, Francis Capati, Trisha Switzer, Philip Brown, Amanda Bowen, Thomas Turry, Haley Hoagland, Chris Hoagland, Tyler Chenoweth, Cherry Kite, Mandy Mayliter, William Dickinson, Erica Chimalewski, Taylor M. Price, Hammerbuns, and Alex Erb. We appreciate you guys very much. Thank you for the support. We are at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Hammerbuns. I like that. Hammerbuns. Boom. Nice Hammerbuns is here. Fuck yeah. Ian, what do you got? For iTunes, I have one for Mommy Des, Missy Town, Caleb GE. And Tambone88. Thanks, guys, for the awesome reviews. The old Tambone88. You know that person? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it but sounded I want like to. you did. <laughs> I don't. No. I most certainly thought maybe don't. you banged that person in college or something. <laughs> maybe. Well, odds are probably, but, you know, bang most people I came across in college. You cast a wide net, my friend. We know. We know. Okay. <laughs> I didn't you know what go fishing, is? the fish came to me. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Ian. What'd you got? You, you know what else this series brought us? It brought us uh it brought us Clinton Dave, so that's a that's another plus from these couple of weeks. There we weeks. go. <laughs> well well, I'm sure he'll be uh hope uh, well he the guy doesn't fucking leave the studio, so I'm sure he'll <laughs> be back. So you know. It's Cohiba time, he'll be gentlemen. Cohiba time. <laughs> <laughs> he'll be around. <laughs> Fuck, I'm trying to think. Uh, last week we got people with our uh, end of the episode uh, discussion with the cereal, and mm. a whole bunch of people chimed in with their favorites. Now I feel like I got to come up with something here to, for us to kind of finish out this episode. What do you got, man? What do you got? Well, fuck, I got nothing. <laughs> trying to think here real quick. Off the, like, I, j- I didn't plan for this because we don't sure. usually do end of the episode discussions. Can we talk about how white people are discriminated against constantly? No. <laughs> nope. Nope. Get out of here, fuck. <laughs> David Millar, you're not welcome back in the studio. <laughs> I hope Bill Clinton puts a cigarette up your pussy, <laughs> you piece of shit. Goddamn. <laughs> Goddamn, pal. It's forceful. All right, let's talk about, well, you guys want to talk about Pop-Tarts for a minute? What are your favorite flavors of Pop-Tarts? What are we, nine? Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, what's fucking wrong with Pop-Tarts? Uh, I can I can do a Pop-Tart discussion. See? 
Pop-Tarts are fucking delicious. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, Dave's going to judge us because he doesn't eat Pop-Tarts. I, I haven't had a Pop-Tart in a quite a long time. I'm going to try to play along, though. <laughs> in my opinion, the s'mores are the best Pop-Tarts. I like that chocolate marshmallow. Yeah. S'mores and cherry, just the straight-up cherry ones are, are tied for me. I love. Ian, I think them. I agree with you. Cherry's yeah. actually delicious. Strawberry. I always like strawberry. Uh, strawberry's choice. okay. That's all right. Not my like favorite, those, but that's all I like right. those blue and purple ones, too. I don't know what flavor that is, but those are pretty Yeah, good. it's like a whole... I think it's like a mystery thing, isn't it? Yeah, Wasn't that their gimmick? gimmick? Like a mystery Pop-Tart mm. flavor? Yeah. Do you toast them, or do you just eat them out of the bag? Oh, I just eat them out of the bag. Me, too. Who's like got fucking toasted. time to toast that? But yeah, they're, they're fucking scalding <laughs> hot in the inside. It's like when I make my pizza rolls every night, and I want to just fucking dive into them, and then I do, and then my tongue is bleeding for the next four weeks because they're too fucking hot. You know where you can put your got tongue big... if you hurt it, Mike? I got a good, I got a good hint for you. Where, where can I put it, Mr. President? I'll tell you later. <laughs> I like, All right. I like we're... my Pop-Tarts dipped in pussy juice, too. It's my favorite. <laughs> Mr. President, that is fucking disgusting. It's, del- it's delicious, Mike. It's delicious. The best thing, the best thing about Bill Clinton was that he ate, like, didn't he used to take his jogs to McDonald's? Oh, yeah. Like, in the mornings, like, with the Secret Service. Yep. They're, like, telling him to lose weight, and the motherfucker would run to McDonald's, get an Egg McMuffin, and go <laughs> home. That's my president Loved right it. there. That's what I fucking want. Love McDonald's. That guy loved Poontang and, <laughs> and, and Sausage McMuffins. That's America, fucking baby. That's America. I like Big Mac's pussy in Arkansas, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Dave, that almost, went, that almost sounded George W. Bush at the end there. I fucking like that. You got to start tweaking your W. Maybe we'll get him on for like our 9-11 episode or something. Uh, that might happen. <laughs> All right. Oh, God. Ian, just get us out of this. <laughs> you guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>